inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and thanks for joining today. Today, we have a unique guest who has very unique skills because he is not only a master with words, but he can convey a compelling message also with cartoons. Martin Shovel is a speech writer, speech writer trainer, communication advisor, and cartoonist. He writes speeches for leaders working in many different fields, including trade unionists, lawyers, academics, business leaders, and doctors. Hello, Martin. Hi, Oscar. Good to speak to you. Nice talking with you. Welcome to the show. <laughs> so one of the very unique things about you is that you are not only a speech writer, communication expert, but this also in the in the visual side that this is the first time I'm going to talk with a cartoonist. So the first thing I will ask you is, even though we are somehow familiar, but what is a cartoon? What is a cartoon? That's yeah. a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a cartoon can be lots of different things. I'm, I'm just thinking. That's why it's such a good question. <laughs> Because, for example, um, it can be one drawing mm -hmm. or it can be a series of drawings as in a cartoon strip or a cartoon book. Um, it can be drawn in a very realistic style, mm -hmm. or it can be drawn in a very impressionistic, loose style, in the way that I draw, mainly because uh, I'm not a great technical draftsman. So I don't know if that's a very good answer. <laughs> sure, it's But, a... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a drawing or series of drawings, as you said, right? It can be some, some message, yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, now, of course, I'm very intrigued to know if you became a speech writer first or you start uh, drawing cartoons and being known as a cartoonist first. What, what was first? I became both by accident. Okay. I, my first accident was with the cartoons and to try and make a longish story short. Mm -hmm. When I graduated from Sussex University, having studied philosophy, like a lot of um, graduates, I wanted to find a way of staying in Brighton, making my life in Brighton, mm -hmm. which, is, which was and is even more so now quite tricky because it's a very desirable, nice place to live, like, like Helsinki. So I talked my way into an English language school. So the background is that Brighton is on the south coast of England mm -hmm. and was and still is a center for foreign students coming to learn English. Uh-huh. So I, I had no experience as a teacher, but as we say in English, I blagged my way. I persuaded 
the person who owned the school who wasn't didn't probably have the highest academic standards um so i got in and for quite a while i was struggling because i didn't know how to teach i didn't know how to manage a classroom and i don't know maybe a year or so into working at the school i came up with some material around the subject of idioms and phrasal verbs now do you need me to explain oh you can give a couple of examples yes so i mean the, the the idioms are important in english as I'm, i'm sure they are in other languages because they are for example a phrasal verb something like um he takes after his father if you're a foreign student and you know the word take mm. and you know the word after <laughs> you've still really got no idea what he takes after his father means yeah <laughs> so that's why we call it idiomatic you know you just have to uh, learn it by experiencing it and probably by being in the country and what what makes this attractive to uh, foreign students is the idiomatic bit of the language makes you sound like an authentic british english speaker mm-hmm. yeah so for example going back to that example um if i was talking about my uh, daughter and i said oh she takes after her mum so another way of saying that which is not idiomatic and is is sort of um a bit posher and stiffer would be to say she resembles her mum she resembles her mother mm. and if someone uses resemble instead of take after you're just going to know intuitively they're not a, a native speaker of english or british english so that's a complicated way of explaining something quite simple so i had i had this material and it went down very well i had a class that was probably on the verge of revolution and once they started getting this material because for the reasons i've just said learning idiomatic english learning phrasal verbs is like um the great trophy that's why they've all come mm. and so the material went well and then other teachers used the material and then one day one of the teachers said why don't you try and get this material published i don't know if anyone has ever said that to you in the past well i know you've published books so mm-hmm. they have well i hadn't published a book and i thought you know i'm never going to do that but it just so happened that in the summer school of our language school there was a, an editor from a very well known publisher at the time piloting some new material i showed her my material and she was interested mm-hmm. and the link with the cartoons was very simple the material depended on lots of drawings mm-hmm. and i'd done these very rough sort of matchstick men and women drawings yeah <laughs> very good they weren't very good at all but when it came to publishing a whole book of drawings the publisher realized that as i wasn't a proper illustrator i would be very cheap mm. so 
they offered me the chance both to write the book and to illustrate it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where the illustration began. And also, when, how old was I? My late 20s, I had to teach myself how to draw because I realized no one had ever taught me before. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how <laughs> the writing and the cartoons came together. And the book, which is still in print, and it was published in 1985, is called Making Sense of Phrasal Verbs. Uh And, And the innovative method was to take a cartoon that illustrated a phrasal verb like take after, and then have a series of question prompts that allowed the uh, student to try and work out from the cartoon what the meaning might be, and then a series of exercises, and then a glossary at the back of the book for them to check if they were right about the meaning they'd guessed. And it became um, a very successful book. And in the early days, in the early years, I even uh, lived on the royalties. So it was a good start. Well, very story. Very interesting story, and yes, it made me also remind when I was uh, studying English. And I think if today the teacher asked me what what was take after before talking with you, I I would have failed. <laughs> I don't exactly. remember. It's, it's impossible. That, yeah, you know. been learning many of those. Of course, many of those are in my mind today, but not all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, excellent. That was how you started a cartoonist, and how you started as a speech writer. The speech writing came after more than 20 years as a full-time cartoonist. Uh And I think really one of the the, the big um, catalysts was in 2009, Martha and I were already working together as Creativity Works. Mm And we were doing, working in organizations, sort of developing creative thinking and stuff like that. Um, And it was the summer of 2009, and we weren't incredibly busy. And Martha had the idea that we should make an animation because we had the skills. We could write it. I could draw it. We could film it make an animation, and then put it up on YouTube to promote our company. And the animation we produced is called Busting the Moravian Myth. Mm-hmm. I and it became a very, and still is, uh, a sort of successful viral video. Uh, in fact, only today we had an email from a Dutch publisher wanting to use it for online materials in Danish schools. Um, that that um, animation was seen by Brian Jenner, who you know, yeah. who started the UK Speechwriters Guild and the European Network. And he invited us along to the inaugural, to the first Speechwriters Conference, which took place in Bournemouth, where he lives, to present and talk about busting the Moravian myth. And so that was really our first 
proper contact with other speechwriters in the world of speechwriting. And since that time, again, as you know, uh, the conference has taken place twice a year, and each conference, Martha and I run a one-day workshop at the beginning of the conference. Mm -hmm. Which I had a pleasure to 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 attend last last year here in Helsinki. Right, in, in Helsinki, so it's it's usually uh, in Oxford or Cambridge in the spring. So in April, it will be in Queen's College. Um, Oxford mm -hmm. last year it was in King's College Cambridge and in the autumn it's usually in a European city as it was in October last year where we met you came on our workshop in Helsinki exactly wow so interesting that it came from um, one um, one project related to your to your cartoons put it in a in a video yeah, and I think I think you know how memory Uh, tidies things up and plays some tricks. Uh -huh. I think we had been involved in working with some leaders on getting their message across. Mm. I think it all sort of really started to come together sure. through the connection with Brian and the conference. Yeah, definitely. And it also, through the conference and also through the uh, animation, it gave us an international profile, mm -hmm. which has also been very helpful. Yeah, exactly, and uh, well, that's um, the the fact that you chose that uh, that topic for for your for this uh, cartoon video is that uh, happened. Yes, yeah, and, and it's a it's a very controversial topic. I mean, I don't know if uh, you want me to explain a little bit. To yeah, your... please. I think it's, some people know, some people don't. Sure, please. exactly. Basically, the Moravian in the title is Albert Morabian, who is a, an American psychologist who I believe in the 70s um, released some research which became distorted, let's say, mm. into something ridiculous, which was something along the lines that whenever we speak, uh, for example, Uh, well, again, I don't know how this would work in the Moravian myth, but generally, if I'm speaking to you face to face, Oscar, it's saying, uh, or people say, that it's only 7% the words, the rest is a combination of body language and tone of voice in terms of you getting my meaning, mm -hmm. which, as I say, would make it hard to work out how on earth our Skype conversation is working if you're only getting 7% of the word, of the meaning through the words because it's only the words. Um, the research that Rabin actually did was around the notion of kind of contradictory uh, communication. So, for example, if you ask me, you give me something to taste and I make a face that looks as though I've eaten mm. seven lemons, but I say, oh, yes, it's lovely. <laughs> it's going to create a kind of dissonance. Mm -hmm. And so his uh, equation was around this idea of how we then respond to a, an inconsistent message like that. There's an interesting story, actually, because in 2009, when we released the video, 
We also sent it to BBC Radio 4. Mm-hmm. There's a well-known journalist called Tim Harford. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Who has a program called More or Less. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at the truth behind statistics and so on and so forth. And amazingly, Tim Harford, a few weeks after we'd sent the link to our animation, mm-hmm. tracked down Albert Morabian. And Albert Morabian said, it's ridiculous. It's not what I said. Mm. <laughs> but um, what can I do? <laughs> myths. It's like the myth, you know, yes. you can see the Great Wall of China from outer space or whatever. It mm. sounds so amazing that people like the idea of believing it. And, you know, you should always be dubious anyway. If someone tells you anything is 7%, why isn't it six and three quarters percent or seven and a half percent? But in terms of the um, presentation uh, profession, it caused a lot of consternation because there's a, a whole area of the presentation profession that likes to buy into the idea that it's mainly performance, it's mainly uh, body language and tone of voice, and it relegates what we consider the most important bit, the words, the hard bit, to uh, a bit part player, as we say in our animation. So there are lots of um, out-of-work actors who are not who don't uh, like the animation very much because it threatens yeah. their uh, income. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I understand very well that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a good animation. Uh, it's funny and <laughs> debunking these myths. And yeah, I'm definitely going to put a link in, in the show notes of this, of this interview. So That's the good. ones who haven't watched it, well. And it also brings us, in terms of the interview, to really the, the, the core... Um, value that we have you know our core message is uh, in terms of the work we do and we're saying that words really matter and that really good communicators good speakers good writers use visual language there's also there obviously a link to the cartoons you know when they speak people can see what they mean and if they see what they mean it usually engages the other senses too You know, they can feel the meaning. So it makes what they say interesting, it makes it engaging, and it makes it persuasive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You have, uh, you have combined these two worlds, now the visual and, um, and the, 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 uh, the, word of, the word of words, <laughs> if, you, if yeah. I can call it. Um, t- tell me more about that, how you now, after your experience uh, many years as a cartoonist and then at least 10 years more also in the in training for speech writing how it's uh, today how do you what do you usually teach well for for many years alongside the um well we still do it occasionally but for many years we taught um a a workshop called cartooning for communicators uh-huh. in it we would show people that they could draw and that obviously drawing is a form of thinking. So not to be able to draw is to limit your thinking. But we would also explore what cartoon thinking is. In other words, there are people I've met 
who technically can draw much, much better than I could ever dream of. <laughs> but they are not visual thinkers. They're not cartoon thinkers in the sense of they can't get a message across. They can't find the essence of the message. They can't simplify it. Mm-hmm. And they can't um, represent it in a way that will attract and engage a viewer. And already you can see that the same kind of cartoon thinking is going to apply to a good speaker, particularly someone giving a speech. And just to give you a couple of very well-known examples, which I think are very cartoony, actually, the famous example, I mean, it's, it's, it's very old, but, you know, it's old and well-known because it is so good, is uh, Churchill's famous Iron Curtain. Yeah, when he mm. said, which is, you know, a very famous quote, he said, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Now, that is a cartoon. And in fact, it's, it's even more interesting than that, because if you try to draw it, mm-hmm. it's not as good or as impactful as it is when you imagine it from the words. Because in your mind's eye, when you hear the words, you can sweep across the continent of Europe. You can get a sense of the scale. Mm-hmm. When you draw it, you limit it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example, yeah. And then, of course, as well, it contains an oxymoron. It contains a curtain that's made of iron, which, again, Hmm. when you hear it and you see it in your mind's eye, you can feel it. You can feel this kind of contradictory nature. But without going into too much detail, I think it's pretty clear it's very much a cartoon idea. And yet, it's an image, it's a visual metaphor that if you took some leading historians of the Second World War, they could debate it and map the history of the post-war years onto that metaphor, and they could probably spend a month doing it or more. So it's a very powerful metaphor that gets to the essence of the situation. And, of course, another one, which is a very simple one, which, again, is very cartoony, was uh, Reagan's... Uh, Mr. Gorbachev mm. to tear down this wall. Very simple. And yet it encapsulates a very complex history. So I hope I've made something of a case for that connection between cartoon thinking and being uh, an engaging communicator with words. Sure, there are, these are definitely uh, great examples. And, um, so it's beneficial. It's not necessarily uh, that um, a speech writer or a speaker has to think visually, but it's very beneficial. That's what you say? Or is, uh, I would go further. I mean, I would say it's essential. I don't mm-hmm. know of any good or great speech writer who isn't visual, just as actually I don't really know of any good writers or speakers who aren't visual. I mean, maybe there's something for for your listeners to reflect on next time, maybe tomorrow or whatever, and they come across a really good piece of writing or hear someone speaking something that really engages them. My bet is that they'll find they're using visual language. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's very likely. And in general, if if you can give us some um, how presenters, speakers, or speechwriters can um, uh, can learn for the cartoon um, in a, in a, a bit more uh, practical way, what we can do? How how well, to start? I suppose the, 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 there are lots of things you could learn, but <laughs> I think the, the the thing. And again, we Martha and me, we work with lots of experts, and every expert client thinks their expertise is unique in terms of uh, not being amenable to simplification. Mm. And as you've heard, you know, trade unionists, doctors, lawyers, sure. uh, bankers, wh- whatever. The truth is that if you are trying to get your message across around your expertise, you have got to be able to simplify it in the way that a cartoonist simplifies complexity. Because if you don't, it's a bit like having uh, a valuable diamond locked in a safe that you've forgotten the um, code for. (laughs) Useless. It's useless. So you do have to find a way. I'm just thinking, to give you an example, um many quite a few years ago martha and i were driving somewhere and we were listening to news on the radio and it was around the time of the um the they managed to land uh, a craft on a meteor which had you know i think never been done before And a scientist was trying to explain how incredible, what an incredible achievement that had been. And his description was, he said it was like trying to land a fly on a speeding bullet. Uh Now, what interested me in relation to what we're saying is, first of all, as a communicator, I thought that is brilliant. Yes. This scientist is engaging non-specialists like us and giving us a sense of the thrill of what's going on and and more importantly, perhaps making us want to know a bit more about the whole project. But what was interesting, (laughs) subsequently I learned there were some of his fellow scientists who were critical because they described the analogy as inaccurate. (laughs) So I leave it to you. <laughs> I think it doesn't matter that it's inaccurate. It's uh, it's expressed much better than <laughs> man. You know, it's a starting point, and and as an expert, yes. you always have to find uh, shared ground with the non-expert. And it may be that the simplified simplified version is enough for for most people, but it's can also be a stepping stone to a more detailed knowledge if you do it right sure sure and how we can find this these ideas uh, of um, to to tell to explain something in a in a very simple way or um, or thinking of cartoon so what are the f- well you could commission a workshop from martha and me <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's quite difficult because, mm. in a sense, I'm not, you know, none of the things I'm telling you are, you know, incredibly original. You know, they're, 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 you know, for example, being a good communicator, visual language. You know, you just have to look at literature. You know, read a novel, poetry, go to the theatre. But I, I like to think, in a modest sort of way, that what we are doing, this combination, as you said, it, it is unusual of being a speechwriter and a cartoonist, a, a practicing cartoonist. That's a novel coming together of different but related skills. And so, I mean, I, I keep being asked to write a book about it. Mm. And every so often I think, oh, yes, I will definitely do it. But at the moment, you know, you will find elements of what I'm saying in all kinds of different sources. But this particular synthesis, I don't know anyone else who's doing it, which doesn't mean they aren't. So not very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I understand that some uh, some authors also talk about, at least talk about this uh, thinking visually. Oh, yeah. definitely. No, no, that, that's that's. You'll find I'm I'm talking more about the cartoon thinking, yes, and 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 the language stuff. Oh no, there's 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 plenty of really good, interesting stuff on on visual thinking and the psychology of visual thinking, definitely. And do you think that anybody can uh, draw a cartoon? Definitely. I mean, um, over the years, we've taught hundreds and hundreds of people to draw cartoons who come to our workshops, whether we did them open workshops or, or in-house for organizations. Um, the, there's a phenomenon, a psychological phenomenon known as pareidolia. Mm -hmm. I stumbled as I said it. <laughs> it's a posh Greek word, but it just <laughs> means, it's just describing the phenomenon that causes all of us to see patterns in in a random stimulus yeah it's it's the way for example you know the raw shark test the ink blot test works you know they they show someone an ink blot and they just say tell us what you can see mm. and then they can make a psychological assessment this this ability this me you know this kind of ability to make meanings from random stimuli is hardwired into our brains. You know, you, I'm sure you'll have experienced maybe looking into a fire and you start to see pictures or the clouds, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that, if you like, is the source of learning to draw. You know, in other words, if you start to make marks on paper mm -hmm. and then allow, relax and allow them to start to resemble things mm. and then start to adjust them, you're, you're already beginning to draw. I mean, it's, you know, there's more to it than that, but it's as natural as breathing. I'll give you, uh, when, when we run our classes, we often ask at the beginning because people get very nervous. If you asked a five-year-old girl if she could draw, what do you think she would say, Oscar? Oh, of course. Yeah. So... I then say, I don't want to be presumptuous here, but I assume that all of you were five years old once. <laughs> Something very drastic must have happened. 
And <laughs> the truth is, in my experience, something drastic did happen. The majority of us were told we were useless and went off and did other things. And then those with talent were just given encouragement. But, but very few people, if any, were actually taught what drawing is. And I think, well, I know from experience that when you teach people through a simple progression of exercises what drawing is, they all realize they can draw. Mm -hmm. So I'm expecting to see some interesting drawings from you, Oscar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a challenge. Uh, I, I will. I will try harder, so, yes. Uh, especially after talking with you, I have more... Um, more ideas and more more hope <laughs> that I'll, I'll be able to write a draw a cartoon and be able to show it to the public, right? Not only for myself. Yeah. Actually, you're touching on another thing because we are, we ask our people in our workshop. We say, "Can you draw? Sorry, can you write?" Mm -hmm. say, yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> so can you you know write a shopping list? Yeah, can you write a, a report, a letter, an email? They're, they're, they're very confident. Mm -hmm. Um, so would you agree that writing is an indispensable everyday tool for thinking? And they say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I say, do you think you could write um, a novel like Margaret Atwood? Of course, they now, they, of course, no, 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 no. But mm. the fact that they can't write a novel like Margaret Atwood or Charles Dickens or whoever doesn't stop them using writing as an everyday tool of, for thinking. But what's interesting is when you hear people talking about the fact that they can't draw, sometimes they will add they can't draw like Picasso or Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. Nor can I. But I was a professional, I am a professional cartoonist. Do you see what I mean? It's a different set of yeah. criteria that feed into this myth of the impossibility of, of, of being able to draw. So that's another myth. <laughs> It is a myth, yeah. We're talking about two myths today. <laughs> all right. So in all in all, we all can uh, write, uh, sorry, draw cartoons. And hopefully you will see my cartoons soon. <laughs> Good. Uh, Martin, could you now share, share with us what is your favorite quotation? I did. Um It's interesting because uh, it gives me a point that I can make, which also I would recommend mm -hmm. to speechwriters. And I recommend it because I know a lot of speechwriters don't. And that is, I, I rarely use quotes mm -hmm. in speeches. In other words, I like the idea um, of not using them. It doesn't mean I would never use one, but it wouldn't be my first port of call. I think you can establish the speaker's um, identity and connection with the audience much better by by doing that. Oh, I'm sorry, we've got a sorry about that. Um, yeah, no problem. And so, with that in mind, I, I've I have come up with a, a quote mm -hmm. which I find useful particularly if you're a, a writer, a speech writer. And it comes from um, a New York Times journalist called David Carr, who died a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And his advice, the quote is, keep typing 
until it turns into writing. Hmm. <laughs> so it's also uh, a built-in antidote to writer's block. Mm, yeah. Keep writing until it turns it. Sorry, keep typing mm. until it turns into writing. You know, I'm sure you, even you probably, Oscar, have had those days when you sit down, you feel very uncreative, mm. and everything you seem to produce stares back at you and pokes its tongue out at you, but you just keep going. Sure, sure, sure. That that's a great quote, and also it's quite visual, visual thinking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, very good. Fabulous. Could you now uh, recommend us one book that has been particularly inspiring or influential for you? I can, and uh, I highly recommend it. Huh. The book I would recommend is called Metaphors We Live By, and it's by a linguist called uh, George Lakoff, mm -hmm. who used to be used to work um, at uh, Berkeley. I think he's an emeritus professor now. And he's done um, amazing uh, work on metaphor, which, is, which has been very influential across disciplines. And I found it incredibly valuable in terms of writing and speech writing. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. Yes, uh, a book about uh, metaphor sounds like... Um great read for all of us and martin could you finally uh, share with us an exercise something practical that you would recommend us to do it regularly what we call a routine to shine a routine to shine. well again linked to because for for me metaphor uh is key the key to unlocking all the things we've talked about in terms of visual language and so on uh So I would always take note. Listen, if you hear someone use a striking metaphor, mm -hmm. jot it down. Yeah. You know, keep a record of it, whether you hear them speaking or it's on the television or mm -hmm. you read it or it's in the newspapers. I keep a whole list in Evernote. So it means mm -hmm. I've always got it with me. It's on my computer. I can access it on my phone. And I think as well as uh, giving you a, a fantastic sort of uh, body of metaphors to study and learn from, mm -hmm. it's, it also sharpens your awareness yes. of the use of metaphors. So that, uh, that, I think, would be a useful exercise. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a very good exercise to write down every good metaphor that that we find. And just just by curiosity, how many good metaphor you find per let's say per week? I think it varies. <laughs> yeah. I think it varies. I, I I couldn't put a number on it. Yeah, but but might... it's one of those things that I think you know that feeling that whether it's a metaphor or something really useful or interesting and you think oh, I, oh that's really good mm. and you find particularly as you get older, if you don't note it down, You're you fine. won't remember it. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Either pen and paper or ever not, but you have to write down before it's gone from your memory. <laughs> exactly. Thanks a lot, Martin, for this very interesting interview. Very fascinating, your story, how you became both cartoonist and a speechwriter. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. Please let us know how we can um, find you on the internet. What are the best ways to find you? 
So two ways. Um, Twitter, I'm at Martin Shovel, S-H-O-V-E-L. And our website, which I have to apologize, it's about to be completely um, redone. We're, we're hoping to launch it soon. But there is a our website, which is still up, is creativityworks, one word, dot net. Excellent. Again, thanks a lot, uh, Martin. It was a pleasure talking with you and all the best. Thank you very much, Oscar. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Did you like it? Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or visit us at timetoshinepodcast.com. Until next time, 